out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are. Hello and welcome to the C86 Show. This is David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. We love so many. But anyway, look, this week I have went all the way to Holland. Indeed, check me out. Because uh, it's the turn of the X. Yes, the anarcho-punk band that started life in 1979, to be precise, and are still rocking and uh, were originally fronted by G.W. Sock. Um, he does go under various other names as well, which he went into detail about. Um, I think that was the first bit, so I've edited that out. But after several minutes of, um, yes, casual chat in the world that is showbiz, we got down to the other interesting thing that was the 80s. This is it. And uh, the musical landscape at that time and how many scenes were happening. And this, after I made some interesting point or not. Uh, was uh, G.W. Sock's reply. Now, it's over to you, G.W., take it away. Well, first you had this punk wa wave, so to speak, and then out of that came so many different things that like, basically it said that you could try anything you wanted and that would be the music. And uh, so people were free to explore whatever they, any direction they thought uh, hmm, could be interesting, just yes. try it. So that's a lot of enormous freedom, of course. Well, the interesting thing about decades, I mean, they don't always line up, do they? The 60s was kind of when we think about the 60s in that cultural and pop world and yeah, all yeah. that. It's kind of 63 to 71, you know, or whatever. You know, it's not quite, yeah. you know. And, and it's funny because for a long time, the 70s had really bad press because everyone said, oh, the 60s were amazing. So it takes a while for a decade to suddenly like, no, the 70s are really good. It, there were some yeah, great yeah. things. And I think the 80s has sort of struggled a bit because... Because of various reasons, but I think no, wait, wait till wait till you start uh, doing the nineties. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I guess we don't appreciate what we have. I, God, that sounds like a Joni Mitchell song, doesn't it? But it does. It's almost <laughs> like it, we don't appreciate it until it's gone. And um, yeah. and the but, other thing, uh, but, but it's also maybe because when you like when it's past, and then you look back on it, then you can take away the drivel that was there that uh, disrupts your view and then you see yeah, there's a lot of interesting bands but you uh, they were uh, not uh, really on the surface yes they were a bit yeah uh, didn't get the, the attention they deserved maybe also well that's right and actually so, you know and i have to say i don't have to say it but i, I will say it anyway but there were a lot of bands i missed at that time for various reasons Maybe me, too, because, me too because because you can't i mean then you know if a record came along and you hadn't heard it and didn't have any means and you didn't want to spend three pound and 99p it just kind of went and and the next week next month something else came along and you thought oh well that that ship has sailed that particular album or band so now i've sort of gone yeah, back yeah. and sort of been listening to records that i missed the first time not because it you know, I didn't sort of want to listen to it. It was just, it wasn't possible. And then thought, actually, this is a really good record. This is, you know, this band yeah, did yeah, some yeah. great stuff. So I must admit, you know, though it does sound like the sort of thing people do when they get older, it's yeah, more yeah, the yeah. fact that actually the music's really good and it's not just like, yeah, just living yeah. in the past completely. Yeah for, yeah, for me, it's been like that because I, I, I came off from the punk uh, scene, so to speak, 
that there was a lot of music that at first I didn't like because everything had to be punk. And then you start to discover other musics and you know, that you think, okay, yeah, that's actually also quite interesting. But then there still were a lot of bands that I kind of uh, didn't really like. But then much later, friends of mine would say, hey, do you know these? And I think, yeah, well, not really. And then I listened to it. And then indeed, you think, hey, actually, how could I, how could I miss this? How, how could I not like this uh, at yes. that time? So it's interesting to well, I know. rediscover that kind of stuff. I was quite on. blinkered. There was there was bands I just thought, well, I lumped them in the new romantic, and I thought, no. And now I listen, <laughs> and now I listen to Depeche Mode, and I think actually there's more to them than I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For, yeah for example, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were the, always the band that thought, oh, I just I brushed them in that other camp, you know, and they, they weren't my they weren't my scene, but yeah, yeah, you know, musically yeah. they're really interesting, and um, yeah, yes, yeah. there you go. But what's kind of always interesting is kind of knowing, you know, what you know the the music that you were listening to when you were growing up those formative kind of years because normally it's around 10 11 where you start to sort of yeah your ears prick up and you think what is this sound because up to then you've probably listened to whatever your parents are playing in the house which god what were your parents playing in the house during the uh, nothing so that was easy <laughs> <laughs> but well, we had uh we had pirate radios, like uh, uh, in Holland you had two of them, Radio North Sea or something, or uh, yeah, that... something like that, and Radio Veronica. What about Radio Caroline? Uh, that was not, uh, we, knew, uh, we knew about it, but we couldn't uh, receive that uh, from where we were. Right. But, we, but Radio Veronica was similar to that. And I think they kind of took the, that idea or uh, took it over and then started the Dutch one. Yeah. So we heard all the, the nice 60s music. It started in the 60s then. So we heard all that kind of music. So all the pop and rock and uh, all the stuff. Uh, so that was uh, pretty good. But yeah, okay, when I was 10, 11, uh, I was into Slade. Yes, that's good. <laughs> that was... Uh, because we, we listened to the radio, and then we had this one TV program, it's called Top Pop, like Top of the Pops, but yes. in a Dutch version. And then suddenly there was something like Slade, and they looked funny, but the music was really uh, yeah, wild, in a way. Yeah. Good singer and stuff, and catchy tunes, so yeah, that was great. And then two years later or so, I... Uh, yeah, this is easy to say to you because then I uh, discovered uh, David Bowie. Yeah, so. Oh my God, that's so yeah, funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so till 1984 or so, I bought all his records, and then I stopped. Yes, yeah, so so. you, you didn't go through the um, the glass spider period. But interesting oh, yeah, now because yeah. it was um, the early. I mean, my parents were got married. God, this is kind of slightly going off road, isn't it? But they married in the late. Seven, uh, 50s and started having children. I was born in 64. Yeah. But interesting enough, because you know, it was a very working class background and I suppose most people were working class yeah. during that period and there was probably a few aristocrats, but you didn't really see them. So they, you know, I think when you got married in that point period, you sold everything you had and my dad sold his record player and <gasps> records and everything because I think you just had zero money and yeah, yeah, yeah. and it, it, you know if we were going to have kind of things like Christmas or holidays my dad would have to get a part-time job or my mum would have to get another part-time yeah, yeah. job 
you know, on top of what they were doing just to pay for those luxuries. I mean, what you earned in a normal job just about kind of covered the rent, but nothing else. So, So it was like we didn't have a record player in the house until the 70s when my dad sort of splashed out and bought one. So it was just the radio during the during the 60s. And it was radio too. my mum would probably listen to. And things like there was a program. It was kind of light pop, you know. It was that yeah, kind yeah. of music, and um, and then sort of yeah, the seventies was top of the pops really, and and it was that glam period for me, which had Slade and Sweet, yeah, dear yeah. old Gary Glitter, but also Alice Cooper, <laughs> Alice Cooper's um, Alice Cooper, yeah, yeah, yeah. schools out, and that was probably yeah. the most radical record I think one could have heard at the age of ten because it just seemed, yeah, yeah, yeah. it probably came out in the summer holiday, and you just went yeah, schools out, burn it down. But luckily, <laughs> David Bowie's yeah. Space Oddity was my first single. Really? Yeah, 75. Uh, ah, okay. I bought, uh, I think it was uh, Ziggy Stardust. That was my first album. Right. And Because uh, I had read something about him somewhere, and I didn't have any records yet. But we had a record player in the house, but more of my, uh, it was a clumsy record player, but... So at a certain moment, I, I uh, disco- uh, read this article, and then it was a sort of about uh, Bowie and the sort of pop music that was not really quite the normal, usual pop music. So I thought, okay, I'll buy it. And then uh, I couldn't really get a grip on it yet because I was 12, 13, whatever. But with the years, it grew on me, and so I uh, very quickly, actually, and then I thought, okay, uh, what did did he make any other records? Yes, he did. So then <laughs> I tried to find those. And then when I was about 15, 16, we had one really good record store. And they also sold uh, bootlegs. Right. So and then I got this fantastic uh, album, uh, the, the, the last show uh, of the Spiders from Mars in the, uh, the marquee, I think it was. Yes. Something there, and uh, and that that was alive, and it was fantastic. Yes, he does a version so, of my death, doesn't he? That's yeah, and, and that and that, that it's a uh, it's it's a bootleg, but it the sound was really rough, but so intense. And then in '83, they uh, ten years later or so, they made it an official one. But then I was very disappointed because then the whole sound was so smooth. All the roughness was gone. Right. And then I thought, oh, what a... And then he made Let's Dance, and then I kind of gave up <laughs> for a while. <laughs> yes, that was a tricky one. Well, it's funny, my first album was Changes One, which was the compilation. Okay, yeah, yeah. And I was no. kind of mesmerised because there was things like Diamond Dogs but and songs yeah, about... Yeah. Suffragette City, which I had, had, you know, I was 11 at the time. I had yeah. no idea watching you. But it seemed very exciting. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, John, yeah. I'm only dancing because the speaker, you yeah. know, the sort of the sound would go from one speaker to the other, that acoustic yeah, guitar. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the whole thing was kind of like, and it was like, good, cool. So, you know, luckily, yeah, yeah. I think with your first love, you do stick with it. And I did stick with it until Black Star, which was, you know, quite some journey. And you have those rough bits, you know, you have you have the 80s, don't you? You have the sort of tonight and... Never let me down. Period. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Tim Machine. Yeah, but for me, it was also like at the end of the seventies, I started to make music uh, myself, and then in bands. So then I was more into this newer stuff, the punk stuff and the fall things like that. 
But then with Bowie, I kind of, I didn't buy it anymore, but I I always was interested in what he was doing. And, and so I, I, I followed it, but less on a musical way than more like... It's always interesting to see what he what he, he was up to. So yes, I, so. I I I completely agree. I think it was just interesting to see how he dealt with life, almost as yeah, if to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. right, okay, I've got to get another album, and, and how going... he sucks up these influences. And yes, then absolutely, gives it a different shape, and then you know, do something with it musically. Yeah, well, I, I think like it was kind of mesmerising because in the seventies. Because in the 70s, he brought out an album a year, plus he produced the Iggy Pop album and a Lou Reed album, yeah, 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 relocated yeah. twice. And you're thinking, that's quite some output you did there, David. You weren't yeah, slacking. Yeah. And then the 80s, you know, with that stadium rock and that smooth sound, it was still interesting. And I just found that, you know, not many people, no one, in fact, has ever been able to do that on their own. You know, and the fact that he, yeah, he yeah, pulled yeah, together yeah. a band and yeah. for musicians and having to deal with that and then deal with going on the road and do, doing yeah. stuff. It was yeah. just, um, it was kind of superhuman without, you know, you suddenly think, yeah, he was quite special. But when did you, I mean, obviously then, I say obviously it's not completely, but then did sort of punk appear in, in your sort of orbit, you know, in uh, sort of 77? For me, I was, uh, I don't know how you call these schools, uh, uh, secondary school or something till 18 yes then uh at the end of that me and my, uh some friends we we heard about punk rock so that was 78 and then we went to go studying and i went to the city of amsterdam to study and terry my friend he went to the city of utrecht and those two cities had a lot of punk shows so we went to see all these concerts uh, small bands, but also uh, bands like Gang of Four, Wire, uh, Talking Heads, anything, the, the Clash. We saw Benches and Benches, Blondie, uh, the Ramones, everything. So that was... My God, from... that was a golden period now, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> really. Uh, like every week there was... And we have a really nice club in Amsterdam, Paradiso. Yeah. It's an old church and it fits about a thousand people. And uh, yeah... It, Every week there was something fantastic, or every two weeks. And there are also some small concerts, so it's also like the, the the little shithead that stood next to you in one concert. Suddenly he was on the stage the next week, and uh, he couldn't play, but he was on the stage. So you thought, oh, well, uh, we can do that also. Then. <laughs> <laughs> we can play as bad as him, and then we can also be on the stage. Yes. So, so you had that kind of... Because being young... It's kind yeah, of, and, yeah. and doing that moment, you've got to have a certain uh, ballsy arrogance um, and fearlessness. Did yeah, you? We were, did... Yeah, we were totally naive because we, we couldn't play at all. So. Right. Because I did see, the... I once saw an interesting documentary, um, well done, one, well done, now sod off about Chumbawamba. Yeah. And, yeah, and, yeah. They, and they were sort of n not in a band. And I think some guy, old chap doing some folk festival sort of was looking for people to be in, you know, to play. And they put yeah, their hands yeah. up and said, oh, we'll play. And he said, oh, that's great. We'll put you there. <laughs> and I went, shit, we're going to have to put a band together now. Yeah, well, it's a bit, we did the same, actually. <laughs> because Terry went to, uh, my friend Terry, we, we, we were talking about, okay, we want to be a band, but we didn't know yet. And we already uh, had a name and we had to think everything up, but we, we never, never did anything. Uh, we made some photos with four of us, but uh, we didn't never practice. We couldn't play at all. 
And then Terry was at his uh, concert, and uh, one guy asked, hey, I'm organizing a small, uh, together with friends, a punk festival in a small city uh, near Amsterdam, basically, in uh, August. This was in February that he asked. And he said, uh, do you want to play? You have a band, right? And Terry said, uh, y yes. Do you want to play? Uh, yeah, okay. So, and then he had to sign a sort of contract. And then Terry ca came home and said, uh, we got a contract. <laughs> we have to, we have a concert. We uh, we have never practiced. Yes. <laughs> we don't we don't even have instruments. Nice. <laughs> but that's uh, then we said okay. Uh, oh yeah, we promised. So and, and we were always in this, uh, everybody knew us because we we wrote our name uh, the X uh, everywhere. So that's very so we had a lot of. Uh, Publicity in a way with uh, big right. markers. You got you got your branding sorted quite before. The... Yeah, because we, we we had a very short name, so it was very easy to write that down. And then wherever there's a punk concert, you write your name somewhere on the wall, right? So everybody knew the name, but they had never heard us, which was uh, logical, of course. Yes. But then we thought, okay, now uh, we have the concert and we are on the program on the bill, so. Uh, Okay, we have to. Uh, so our drummer had to buy a, a little drum kit. The bass player had to. Buy, he had a bass. He, he had the bass. I had to buy a microphone. Uh, Terry had to buy a guitar, and then we had to learn everything because we had never played before. So, right, uh, that's so quite was, that's uh, quite an ambitious thing. I know. Um, yeah. <laughs> it was a uh, members of the. Of, uh, we've got a fuzz box, and we're going to use it. I think it had a very similar thing, and that's why yeah, they, yeah, yeah, they yeah. created a sound because they thought, well, actually, we're going to have to create something for. 15 yeah. minutes here we'll um we'll, yeah. we'll have some feedback so did you yeah. at that stage think had you sung in any kind of choir or any capacity before uh, that? i had been in a choir for about five minutes when i was 12 yeah because not... our school was opposite the church and then the, the female conductor of the children's choir came into our room in his classroom and she asked, uh, they needed uh, boys for the for the choir. So some friends and I, we said, okay, we'll do it. And she said, oh, great, and come Sunday, and then Sunday there's the, the, we have the books with the, the songs, and then, so we went there Sunday, and then we sang. And then after the first song, she said to me and my, uh, uh, my friend that, we had to go to there and there in the uh, other uh, school to pick up some uh, songbooks now. And then uh, this, we got a key. Basically, she said, just bugger off because you're, you guys are totally uh, <laughs> ruining it. <laughs> because if we couldn't find these songbooks and when we came back, the, 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 the the mass was already over. Right. So that, uh, that, that was my uh, that's, entrance, a, that's a crippling, uh, that could have been a crippling <laughs> moment for most young no, people. Yeah, yeah, well, but we, we didn't like those songs anyway, but we thought, okay, why not? So did you so, have, um, you know, because I I mean, I'm, I know it's one of those great cliches, uh, you know, when people say I can't sing, but it's not just the fact that I don't think I can sing, which I think people have backed me up on that, but it's also I can't, I couldn't tell if, you know, I think when I sing, which isn't a lot, and mostly with, with on my own, I can't tell if it's in key or what key. You know, it's just like not good. Can you? Could you at that stage tell what your voice sounded like and and whether it sounded good or not? I had no idea. 
But it was the fact that, that Terry, he wanted to play the guitar. And I sometimes wrote, uh, well, when I was 15, 16, I started to write little poems, you know, like every adolescent writes poems or stuff like that. So then it was decided I would be the singer. But I, I didn't think I could sing, but with punk, it didn't matter at first. So, yes. And, and then uh, I'd long doubted if I could sing. Now I know that I can sing, but it's, it's uh, a specific way of singing. And it's a bit of uh, uh, talking singing, speaking singing. And uh, I, know, I know that when I have to sing somebody else's melody, I'm fucked <laughs> because I can't remember that. But if I had made, uh, come up with that melody myself, I could remember it automatically. And so, and I, I managed to, if the music is there, I can, uh, I, I can find my way with the instruments that I'm not out of tune somehow. I can follow that, uh, uh, I, I, yeah, I can follow that, 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 that sound that it's makes some sense somehow. Yes, absolutely. So, so, so there's a way of, I can, I can sing, but I, uh, there are a lot of things that I cannot sing so but that's okay uh, i suppose when it, uh, yeah i mean when you listen to some of the lou reed stuff on transformer and various other yeah, yeah, projects yeah. It, it has that kind of quality and same with bob dylan i guess as well so. yeah yeah it, it, that's also that's something you have to learn to accept from yourself that or uh that you can i can't sing sing but i i uh managed to create something that fitted with the music that we were making. And then uh, with the years, I also realized people who could sing better than me could not do it with our music. So my voice fitted really well in what we were making. So that was, uh, yeah, sort of confirm, confirming that, okay, uh, it works, so it's okay. Yes. And also, yeah. I, I suppose it's quite interesting. It's because I know some people who lead choirs and probably have great vocal and do all the exercises. But to be honest, I have no idea what their voice would sound like. And it probably doesn't have anything very distinctive. Whereas some people who probably would be graded quite poorly on the great on, on, yeah. on in the exam, you know, like, as soon as they say well, something, say as soon as they say the first line, you think, "Oh yes, I know who that is." So I kind of yeah, think, yeah. Well, like with Bob Dylan, I mean, yes, you can miss that. Uh, that's quite a. Not sure if he can really sing, but it works with his music, so yes. he can sing because you believe. I believe him when he, he, he sings. Uh, so that's a very interesting way of. Uh, he doesn't do things that he cannot do. But when he does something it, uh, uh, with the, together with the music, it works. So then, then you are musical. Uh, you have a musical skill. So yeah. yeah. So with with that first concert, obviously it went better than expected because because you you sort of woke up in the you know the next morning. We survived. We survived. You yeah. survived, and that is probably <laughs> enough. But with that thrill and the adrenaline of thinking, wow, like a drug, you thought I might need to do that again. Well, it, it, it's true that we were, although we couldn't really play, but we were really, uh, for the moment that we started to practice, we were very uh, serious about it. We do, also, we didn't know 
we didn't know if he would uh, get better or do a lot of shows or would uh, be a band for a long time. But we said, okay, we did a show and now we're going to, we, we kept practicing a lot and we were lucky that we could play support act for a lot of small other bands and so or little parties. And when you play live, you learn so much more than only in the practice room. So we got uh, quite soon better, but it was also a lucky circumstance that we wanted to play very fast punk rock, like the Ramones and stuff, but we couldn't because we uh, were very clumsy still. So it became a bit more scratchy uh, sound. So we sounded like uh, different from the other punk bands. So we were, uh, it was not really fast, but it, it had a bit of more uh, hookish, uh, a bit like Gang of Four has in this, the scratchy guitars and the hooky uh, rhythms and stuff. Yes. So, uh, so, and then we thought, well, okay, it's not what we thought it, we were planning to do, but this feels very uh, comfortable because it feels like us. So, so we thought, okay, when then this is the direction we have to go to. But we were very serious in it, so we practiced really a lot, and then, yeah, slowly you get better. So yeah, and was this because um, because at that time when seventy nine and you bought your first album yeah. like the following year, which is very fast actually for for, yeah. a, lot, <laughs> for a lot of punk people. It's quite, yeah. it's quite, it's quite dramatic because, because also that period, you know, in in the UK, we, you know, you know, Thatcher had got in in '79, and the early yeah. '80s was a bit of a grim time. There's there was the Falkland War, the Falklands War, yeah, and then yeah, there was yeah. kind of a huge amount of unemployment in this country. So a lot of people were, um, yeah, had sort of gone on to the signing on on the dole. So there was a lot yeah, of we jobs were on the dole too. Job seekers' lands and enterprise lands, which kind of they hardly yeah, hassled yeah. you for some of those because they just wanted you off the book, so to speak. And yeah, yeah, we had in, in Holland, we had uh, the economy was also not good. So when we were finished with our study, uh, we were all for students basically. But when we were finished with the studies, there there were no jobs. So we straight away we got unemployment money. And it wasn't much, but we lived very cheap, so we didn't need much. So we could spend all our time on uh, on the on the band, basically. Yes. So Be- because yeah. that first album, I mean, it's it's short and sweet, isn't it? You know, it, it, yeah. You, you punch it in, and and obviously wrote songs that you uh, could relate to, squat songs. Yeah, song yeah. rules, sucking pig. Yeah. I'm sure yeah, that's yeah, political. Yeah. So it was, it was. Um, and did you manage to get a producer and sound that you were kind of pleased with with that particular release? Uh, well, the, the thing is, we had never, apart from a seven inch, we had uh, uh, earlier in that year, we had never recorded anything. So we had no idea how you would record. Uh, you could hardly play. So how could we record? But we met this. Uh, this guy, Dolph, he, he had uh, squatted a house just outside uh, Amsterdam together with some friends. And the living room they had changed into a, a, a studio, just four track. So he, all, he, he had just started this studio and he also had to learn everything basically. So, uh, But uh, we could get along really well with him. So he, he uh, we went there for two days to record the four songs first of the seven inch. 
And uh, well, we had a really good time. So then we thought, okay, then Dolph is our producer for also for, for the album. And uh, so, yeah, you can hear that the, the sound is quite primitive still, but that's also because we, we didn't knew any better at the moment and neither did he. But uh, well, that's, that was the best that we could, as we could. So we were, yeah. and I, I, I must say, I also, when it came out, I could not listen to it properly because it was basically the first time that you hear your own voice uh, recorded. And it sounded so different from my, my from how I hear my own voice. Like like when I talk, I hear it through my ears, but also from inside my head, I hear my own voice. But then with the record, I put it on a record player and it comes out of two speakers. And then I, I was not sure if that was my voice. <laughs> I didn't know what to think about of it. But, uh, yes, it's funny because I, I know hearing members of Joy Division saying that they, when they first heard it, you know, they recorded him, they were really disappointed with the sound. It wasn't what they expected at all, which I know, <laughs> yeah. which I know is slightly different to what yeah. you were saying yourself, yeah. but it was that kind of thinking, oh, I'm not sure if Mars and Hannett's quite got what we, we were about, but obviously it's like, oh, actually it's quite good. But I know what you yeah, mean yeah, about the voice. Yeah, yeah. The first time you hear your voice, you just think, how do people not want to sort of laugh at me in the street? <laughs> I, I, that is such yeah, an embarrassing yeah. voice. I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't quite get it. So, um, and then you slightly get over it. Well, no, you don't. You go up to the first person you know and say, that's not me, is it? And they go, yeah, it is. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. Shoot. But then also, uh, with later, you start to get used to hear it like that. So then you think, okay, yeah. So your, your ears adapt a bit somehow to yes. uh, how, how to yeah, how to receive it somehow. I don't yeah. know how that works with ears. And also, the other thing is you, you kind of realise that sometimes, when, especially when you're talking, you punch away to sense and sentence with certain yeah. words that you think, I really must stop saying that word as a, yeah. <laughs> as a full stop or a, yeah, a, yeah, making yeah. another point. So words like actually and basically get kind of like, oh, I must stop saying those words, actually. So when you had that honeymoon period, because frankly, you sold 3,000 copies of that album, which must have been like, wow, we're kind yeah. of... It was, well, the, the thing was, we uh, released it in October, and we were one of the first bands from that punk scene in that that time that released an album, and uh, it was kind of two months b before the the Christmas and the, well, we have a thing, similar thing like Christmas called Saint Nicholas. Yes, Good so Saint Nick. buy presents for your uh, friends or your family, etc. So, but when so the first thousand copies were gone in a week because everybody from the punk scene finally there was a, a, a record, an album from a Dutch punk band. So everybody bought it, and then we had to get another thousand from the pressing plant. And they were also gone in a week. And then we went another thousand. And that also went like, so and we thought that was normal with, with records. So we, we, so with every time we had, to, we didn't have so much money. So we had to go pick up the records in the Belgian pressing plant. So it took us always a whole day to go there and get them there and then come back. So we did that four times, and then it was after December, and we thought, okay, now, now it's really enough. We, we sold 4,000, we do one more time 500, and that's it, because 
it's an old record already, you know. Yes. Like it's already half a year old, almost. So did you? Uh, I mean, I know being punk especially when you're young as well, or an anarchist, it's incredibly important to get your principles right. But then did you sort of sit down and sort of work out some of the kind of ideas of publishing and um, what to do uh, with, with that side of life? Because obviously, you know, you, you know, it doesn't take much to do the math thing. Actually, that was quite a lot yeah. of kind of cash for people who were unemployed. Yeah, it, it was that we, we very early already with the... Uh, even with the first seven inch, we already thought we're not going to a record company because uh, in Holland we're not really small. Uh, there were no indie record in uh, record labels yet, and the big ones are they all only had stupid bands on it. So we thought we're not going to go there because they don't they don't like they don't like punk rock anyway. So we will release it ourselves. And also, then you are with four people, and you could borrow a little bit of money from somebody's parents. And then we said, okay, well, when we, uh, when we sell it, sell enough, then we pay it back. And that works. So then when we had the album, uh, we did a similar, that we needed a bit, certain amount of money. And then we borrowed uh, a few thousand guilders. Uh, we had guilders at, the at that time. Uh, from somebody's parents and then every time that we sold the thousands we could invest that money again and at a certain point you make a little bit of profit on the records in the end so we could slowly also pay back the the money that we had with borrowed and then so the thing was also that when we uh, we realized also that if we sell the records ourselves we get more money when we sell it to the shop than even when we have a record deal. Because with a record deal, you get, as a band, maybe 10%, but that 10% only comes after they have bro broken even. But the broken even is there is a lot of money there that has been used for bullshit things, publicity that we don't want. So we thought, okay, if we do the, that little bit of publicity that we need, we do it ourselves too. Then we keep all the costs low. And since we are unemployed, we don't have to make money out of it. So as long as the record breaks even, we are already uh, saved. So and with the little bit, the money that came back from the first record, you could save a bit of money for the next record. So that, and we always did it like that. Yes. That was kind of <clears throat> a we nice... We were very stingy, yeah, so we Dutch. So <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to spend too much. <laughs> well, yes, and, and well, in those days, and especially if you had a sort of working-class background starting in the sort of 60s period, yes, as, as there was a saying that old people would have, if you look after the pennies, the pounds look after themselves. So yeah, that yeah. was my grandparents who were, yeah. <laughs> so that was that kind of world. But yeah. then, yeah, because were you aware of people then at that stage, like crass? And yeah. yeah, 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 they were a bit, uh, in, in a way, they uh, were a big influence, not necessarily music wise. Some of it I really liked, some of it I liked less, but I liked the way they organized themselves and just were totally independent from any bullshit uh, from the music uh, business. Yes. So that, so that, yeah. The, and also, because at that time, there was, you know, everything was very tribal, wasn't it? I mean, you know, yeah, every, yeah. I mean, looking back at it, you know, the 70s, you know, there was, 
I mean, obviously, when glam came along, those people who had been into that 60s scene of, you know, like the psychedelic and counterculture must have been horrified with glam rock and definitely, definitely suddenly sounded quite old, even though they were probably only 25 because they would have <laughs> not got the kind of and, and men wearing makeup, you know, especially yeah, after you had all that butch macho kind of stuff in the 60s with, you know, smoking drugs and stuff. But even so, yeah, yeah. they were not going to dress up and look like kind of that and then you yeah, know you yeah. had the prog rock period of the the um uh, yeah, the 70s and the sort of the west coast of californian stuff with lots of hairy men with big beards and then punk came along and i remember sort of like you know when two-tone happened you know that whole sort of scene yeah. with the beat yeah. you know you know again we couldn't really you know i remember sort of there was a band in the uk called status quo that you know like the yeah, the, yeah. Quo, the quo fan was you know and met and heavy rock you know, would have beaten you up if you sort of admitted to liking <laughs> yeah. mod music, you know. So it was yeah, it was yeah. like, you know, yeah. it, you know, it was kind of serious. You had to be a bit careful going, yeah, I really like Mirror in the Bathroom because you get thumped. So you you had to yeah. sort of um, not. But then the punk period came along and, you know, like you said, that Gang of Four uh, magazine pill, they were, it was all kind of quite scratchy and a bit intense, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, probably, the, and the probably, funny thing, yeah. The funny thing was also that it all went in different directions. So they, they all kind of created their own music, which was not totally punk rock anymore, but it was also not totally uh, industrial or whatever. Like like the, the I remember the first Pale album with this that uh, I heard, uh, Flowers of Romance. Romance that that drum sounds was so different from what everything that I had heard before. That wow the it's a whole new world uh, opening up, so to speak. Yes, that so, was intense. I yeah, mean, yeah. and and, and the, a lot of bands like that that you think, wow, well, what's what's happening here? And uh, so, yeah, uh, that was very exciting. Yeah. yeah, and I was just yeah, and also that that kind of squatting movement. You know, I know you probably it's interesting. Everything gets lumbered together in a slight. You know, it becomes a marking marketeer's dream doesn't it because suddenly if you're in that world of squatting bands suddenly it doesn't matter you're never going to get out of it because people are going to keep dragging you in aren't they because i know i know a few people got kind of frustrated in the sense that they got put into a scene and they think actually i don't really want to just be in this scene but there's no way out almost a bit like uh yeah at first it, it felt a bit like that but it was also like with the squat scene there were a lot of small uh crazy little places where you could play on parties or in the squatted buildings and and so uh, and for us the squatter scene and the punk scene were for us the ideas were kind of related but we also knew that we didn't want to stay in that scene too much because like with every scene it becomes can become a bit narrow-minded because you are either with them or without not with them and then but it was not easy to break out of it at first. To to we we never fitted in the normal rock scene anyway. So. Yes, but those you know fans at that time you know who were into the punk in punk scene and and the squatting scene, which is kind of it wasn't Sham sixty nine, which is almost a bit comical and and yeah, and yeah. and embarrassing to watch when you see it on top of the pops now. But the punk, you know that <laughs> scene with like people like the Poison Girls. Yeah. Glide Power, Chumbawamba, um, yourself, Crass. I mean, all you know, there was there was something kind of quite a serious intent because yeah, most yeah. of those bands had some 
in the words of Embry Chumbawamba, like colossal amount of sleeve notes, didn't they? You had to sort of sit there for days working out what you what you agreed or disagreed with, and and it was quite intense, wasn't it? You know, there was a lot behind those songs. It wasn't about yeah, yeah. The kids. I must say, also, I, I had always had we had always had the impression that the especially the English bands were even more serious with that, with all the. Uh, doing the right things in the lyrics and stuff that we, we, they had a lot of, um, how you say that, uh, 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 can't come up to work, uh, more that they needed a lot of uh, books and stuff to, yes, where they took the, 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 the things from. And for us, we didn't really read the anarchist books or anything, but for us it was more uh, a sort of feel. And you, uh, there are things happening in society that you agree on or not, and you, so you make a choice where you stand, and that's what we wanted to sing or talk about. So, but it was uh, came more from out of the daily uh, circumstances than that we would look it up in a book first, because we also it's also a bit. It had to stay a bit uh, open uh, to, uh, I mean, we can be very uh, convinced that we are right in certain uh, topics uh, or statements, but sometimes we're also uh, just guessing. But we feel sometimes this is the right way to do it, or this, uh, we have to say something about this, and then just do it and not first wait till we find the right article to to justify it or, or something. Yes. Well, I know it was, um, at times it was sometimes hard to, to sort of take it all a bit too seriously because you think, actually, I'm, I'm just not going to read that book. And it, looks yeah, really, and, it, and it looks really dull. And I'm just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to read the dull books. <laughs> you know, I, I don't I'd mind, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm right there, you know. And, and I love reading it, but I, I'd rather read a good interview with somebody and then they pick out their uh, inspiring uh, catchphrases or fragments, and then that for me that's uh, clearer than 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 the whole theoretical. Uh, yes. The, okay. Yeah. This is you're just not going to read Karl Marx, really. Not no. not not in my lifetime. But then... it's also not. I mean, it's interesting to know a bit about him. Yeah. But I don't have to read. Uh, my camp. No, oh, God, no, that's not my camp. That was Hitler, wasn't it? Sorry. <laughs> Christ. I'm sorry. I was just looking at your second album and I think it just got into my subconscious, actually. Jesus. Sorry, it was the cover. It was the cover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, God. Sorry about that. Jeezy Queasy. Anyway, <laughs> what did. Was it who did. Was it La Capital, um, Karl Marx? Capital, yeah, yeah, the capital, yeah, yeah. I don't know. And the communist uh, manifesto. I know, I know, I know. Yeah, people yeah, yeah. got very upset if you kind of came out with the wrong thing. If you <laughs> well, want, if you, if especially you... this title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you think? Oh, sorry, I wasn't paying attention. Uh, maybe my capital. I do. I have a funny story because I, I, uh, I was dating somebody and. Uh, she had Chumbawamba albums, and and suddenly there was that one, the, the Dan but no bacon single, where he's got his picture of his penis. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and I remember yeah. being given that, and it's like, actually, I don't really want to look at this, and I don't really want to read. <laughs> I don't really even want to read all about his kind of theories on gender politics. Quite at this moment, it's, 
I'm sort of hoping this date might go a little bit better. Um, <laughs> but, you know, um, yeah, it was like, um, you know, can we just play something that's a bit more catchy as well than Dan Butston, <laughs> Dan Butt's solo albums? I love it. All singles, terribly angsty. Because did you, I mean, then the second album, I must admit, where was it recorded? Because I couldn't pronounce this if you held a gun to my head. Uh, well, I, uh, we recorded it in a place where we used to practice at first. Uh, the first album was in in a, in a studio. And the second one, the, the the main part we did in where we practiced, which was in a sort of massive hall, where they make these uh, preparations for uh, uh, scenery for uh, um, big uh, uh, exhibitions and stuff like that. But then the vocals were done in the studio again, and that that's called uh, the Koeienverhuurbedrijf. Okay, this is because so, I. I think that's the one you... Uh, because I, I'm sure you don't pronounce it like this, but it's recorded at Jokes, jo- Jokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Jokes, so how... it's called Jokes Koeienverhuurbedrijf. Yep. Which oh. means like uh, Joke, Joke is the name. And so the, that was at the time the, the girlfriend of the Dolph, the producer. And uh, the, the studio they called Cowrent Company. Right. So it got, because the, the 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 house was in the, the in the countryside, so instead and because the the studio was built in the living room, they took away the the front window, so that was uh, uh, yeah uh, with wood a wooden uh, window now, and they painted a cow looking from inside out into the field. So when you would arrive, you could there was a cow behind the window looking uh, at you. Right. You, so. God, it's good, it's good. So look, yeah. to keep the party kind of happy and, and light in the 80s, let's face it, we were very intense, weren't we? Your your cover is kind of ups the stake here, doesn't it, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, there's nothing, there's nothing, you know... I mean, because the other thing about the 80s was that you had that Trevor Horn production sound that was like... A, Frankie goes to Hollywood, ABC, yeah. you know, you had Duran Duran on yachts. Yeah. And yeah. and in this That's case, right. yeah. you had a Jewish orchestra at a concentration camp in Berlin playing to yeah. people yeah. going to the gas chambers. So yeah. um, so in the from, from your first album to the second album, you were definitely, you weren't possibly not reading those books, but you were definitely taking it a, a notch higher, weren't you? Uh, yeah, well, we, we, yeah, we, we were very, uh, because at that time the, the Scott scene was very, uh, strong and also sort of anti-militarist, uh, action groups. And we were in the middle of that. And so we really wanted to talk about the things that uh, concerned us and what was going on in society. And uh, it was a bit of a bleak uh, period. Uh, there was not so much happening. And also, we also felt that in the, the, the normal newspapers and media, our point of view was never uh, there. It, so we thought, okay, then we use our music as being our medium so to tell us what's what's bothering us and what how we want to change things and stuff. So at that time, uh, our, especially the first two albums were really, uh, yeah, very serious, so to speak. 
Yes. But uh, we also realize that we're not always serious ourselves. So we also have to find a way to do something different. And uh, so, yeah, that uh, that's something you also learn with the years that you, like in the lyrics, I want to make, even if it's a serious subject, I want to be able to make jokes, something funny, even if it's only wordplay or stuff like that. So slowly it's also came a bit more uh, open. But yeah. of course it was still very, uh, people thought it was still very political. But, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. So be it. So be it. <laughs> <laughs> it, it wasn't Sade's Diamond Life, was it? Let's face no, it. It no. was. It was kind of because because a lot of the bands I've interviewed, they have a kind of a five year narrative. You know, they get together, they spend twelve months, probably you know, drinking, taking drugs. They make a sing. You know, if they're in the band, they make a single. John Peel would give it that spin. The John Peel session, things are going really well. You know, that would give them a lot of kind of like playing around the country because every town in britain basically had an indie alternative night sometimes yeah, yeah. mostly on a monday or tuesday let's face it people would just get in the van they would go there it didn't matter you know if it meant going to the other side of the country because you'd you'd have an audience of about 150 200 people mostly because yeah. you know because you also had the gatekeepers like we had the NME, Sounds Melody Maker, Record Mirror. So that was good. You know, John Peel, uh, even though you listened to it and know what you didn't, uh, I didn't know anybody else who did, but then, you know, you realised that there was all these other people like me who were just kind of yeah, a yeah, bit yeah, obsessed yeah, about yeah. it with yeah. very few friends, but yeah, great music taste. Yeah. Um, no, that's yes. true. <laughs> yeah. We try our well, best. In but Holland, then, the, the, but, the scene was smaller, but it worked in a similar, similar way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so it did, yeah. it did create it, but then normally, you know, a band does kind of, two albums possibly three at the most before it all gets kind of a bit kind of ta you know a bit a bit difficult but you during that 80s period were absolutely on it weren't you you know there was no stopping you uh, we, we were very uh dedicated to we wanted to really uh, uh it, the band was just, uh, uh i think that's been our strength all these years that it was uh we were very. We were not always serious people. Uh, we we like a good laugh, but we were very serious about the band. That that was number one. So we put all our, our uh, energy into that. So we wanted to do as much as possible. Play, uh, record as soon as we had enough record uh, uh, songs, we wanted to record it and. Uh, yeah, the most logical way to do it, uh, the most logical thing to do for uh, we thought. Yes, well, you, so. you you were like you like Prince of the of the anarchist scene. Actually, <laughs> you were just literally bringing out albums every day. Um, because you also started picking up people, you know, the famous John Langford, who was in the Mekons, and yeah. um, oh god, the Three Johns, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, but that... also because the like the Meagles were a big uh, in that sense also an influence because uh, we liked uh, they well when they started they also were clumsy as hell but also very catchy uh, so the first seven inches were really good and we saw them play and uh, and then by ex uh, more or less coincidence we. Uh, met him and then we asked uh, 
and we had a talk, and it was a, uh, yeah, it was nice. So we thought, and we knew he was in town uh, for a while because he was recording another band, Eton Crop. And then we said, oh, maybe you want to do something with us? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so that's very easy uh, in a way. It, it was not a big plan, but you meet somebody, and uh, you feel if there's a click or not, and if there is a click. You decide, okay, let's do something together. It's very yes. simple. Yeah. Well, also, but a lot of people struggle getting a producer that can capture the sound that they're looking for as well and thinking, yeah. you know, and that's often, you know, and I sometimes, one of my favourite bands of the 80s was Husker Du, and they've, their last album, Warehouse, yeah. I always think sounds really tinny and I just kind of always regret, you know, I always think the production isn't so good, but obviously yeah. they liked it at the time. But, obviously, you know, and... and having done so many interviews you know there's a, you know the producer has a huge effect on on the final sort of come, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. outcome and also the input in the studio you know keeping the vibe or having the occasional yeah. su uh, suggestion as well to keep it kind of rolling so yeah do, did your experience in that in that in that world kind of vary quite a bit uh well we, we the first 10 15 years we mostly worked with Dolph and sometimes with John Langford and then with John uh, was there with the third album, and Dolph and John worked together then. And what was interesting was that John had a bit more experience in the the producing bit. So, but he could, had a good click with Dolph, so they could uh, uh, help each other a bit with finding the sound. And John found a really nice way of open uh, open up our our sound. So that was really nice. He found a way to make the drums more, uh, yeah, not uh, not so flat, so to speak. Had a bit more of a warm feel in the in the drums, yes. which opened up the the, the 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 sound of the whole band. And so that was a, bit, a nice step. But I also know that with John, uh, as with Dolph, they both are very uh, funny people too. So it's always, uh, there's a lot of enjoyment when we are recording because uh, it's, it's, we are serious in recording it, but we, uh, it also has to be a having a nice time while, we, while we're there. Yes. So well, it, it, yeah. a, good, a good vibe, as they say. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. by the, the, the mid-80s, you know, in the UK and I suppose elsewhere, you know, indie pop really became kind of thing that jingly jangly sound that you know the Smiths really yeah, um, yeah. sort of captured so so brilliantly. You know, and between eighty three to eighty seven was kind of that sound, and there was bands like the Go Betweens and the June Brides and the Triffids, and before that you had Orange Juice. Um, so there was kind of indie pop, and the charts had become you know had grown quite a lot in that time and then sort of by the mid 80s you you're you know the lineup had changed quite a bit and then you sort of got a lineup which was quite solid for quite a period of time so did that did that shift the band quite a bit uh, it was like in uh, around 83 84 that um Say at the end of 84, we got a new, uh, we had a female drummer, but she left. And then uh, Catherine came. And then we realized, okay, this is, uh, 
together with Terry, me, Luke, and Kat, we thought, yeah, now it feels this is the the core, and that worked really well, and we were all really uh, bent first, so to speak. So that was a very uh, easy way to work because we were all totally dedicated, and uh, but we we never thought of. We didn't know which way we would be going with the music, but we also, towards the end of 88, when we made this Oral Gorilla, that was a really loud album. And then we thought, uh, that is where we uh, reached a sort of limit, like people liked the acts, or they, but when we were so loud, they uh, did not like it so much because they could not stand it when they were in the at the concert because then they could not enjoy the music anymore so we thought okay we have to if you want to find a sort of intensity then it should not be only in volume but more in playing with different volumes and so that, so that if you play really loud and then you are suddenly very quiet that it gives a bigger shock than when you just play loud and even louder Yes. So that was a sort of, uh, that was an eye opener that we, we, we thought, okay, now we can't get any louder now and something has to change. Yes. And you recorded that in the famous Rochdale Studios, didn't you? Yeah, uh, Sweet 16. Which a lot of people kind of rave about. Uh, well, it was a good studio, but with, with it, I think it was owned by one of these guys from uh, New Order, but can't remember anymore. Uh, yeah, ones, but, uh, was it Kate? Okay, by then, had you had had? Were you getting a bit too carried away with being kind of rock and roll? Did you feel like actually? No, that... we, we, we absolutely not. Rock, we never felt rock and roll. <laughs> but but the thing with volume, you know, when just wanted it to be get louder, you know, let's turn it up to eleven and all that. I just wondered if you were had slightly kind of felt that it was. You know, uh, people... it, I think that was influenced by the 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 around the mid eighties. There were also this, these these noise groups coming up, like Sonic Youth, and we felt uh, connected with that more than with the punk bands. And more than with normal rock bands. Yes. So, so we, 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 that kind of noise sound uh, became part of us also. Yeah. Well, it was one, you know, the, it was interesting by the mid eight, well, no, by the late 80s, a lot of those kind of indie bands that I loved so much started to sort of fall apart and break up and give it, give it a miss, mainly because they'd been together for five years and after the second or third album had sort of had enough of each other <laughs> and sort of the lack of money was also another driving force. And, you know, and a lot of people, if they ever tour America, come back kind of broken and saying, that's it, I've had enough, I'm not doing this anymore, this has destroyed me. But the, the then yeah. but then ecstasy came along kind of in that period of 88, and suddenly there was that shift of the music kind of focus becoming much more about the dance scene, which I think a lot of bands were thinking, we were already starting to dwindle a bit, you know. we They had their kind of golden period in the sort of 85, 86, possibly 87, but then... 
you know, the Bog Shed, Stump, Big Flame, all those kind of bands that were great for an album or two. Yeah. You know, it was like, what are we going to do next? We can't just bring out the same kind of sound. And, you know, and now everybody wants to t- take ecstasy and sound like the Stone Roses or Happy Mondays. So did you, were you a little bit aware of those kind of shift in kind of... Uh, we saw it happening, but like we were not... Uh, one thing was that we never uh, were into drugs, so the whole ecstasy thing, I have no idea uh, what effect that has on people because I never used it. We were th- we thought that was kind of uh, a boring thing. It's like I thought you were going to say mean, I thought I thought you were going to say it was a bit bourgeois. I thought yes, <laughs> <laughs> no, it probably is also. But we were totally not interested in that, and we didn't like that kind of music. So that was easy. But what we did have was that, uh, although it always X always sounded like X somehow, but we were also um, once we had done a certain kind of thing, we were not like, oh yeah, the next album is also going to be like that, because we were very curious to try other things. So. At a certain point, you get influenced also by other kinds of music. And then you thought, oh, that's a nice sound. Maybe we can uh, put something of like that sound into our own music because it's, it's, it feels good. And uh, so we were, we, we were always a bit kind of curious. Uh, how can you uh, go forward uh, with your music, yes. find a new way of telling it? And so we were never really stuck for with um, we never had the the fear of doing three three times the same record also because we couldn't but also because it uh, because we we were still also improving uh, playing wise but also when we improved the playing we also improved uh, widening our own uh, horizon with things that could have a nice uh, influence on our own music. Yes, I mean and, because and, and put your bring your music further somehow. Because interesting, you, you and it's not that was not the plan, eh? but it that was more like uh, how you say it, instinctmatic or something. Uh, that it, we felt like okay, we we it's not a plan, but we want to keep developing the the music. Well, it's interesting because you started. To almost get a bit more avant-garde, didn't you? Kind of bringing in different musicians and different sounds, and you know, bringing you, you had a double bass saxophone. You know, there was there was a lot more experimentation, and some of the yeah. and some of the songs start to sort of become sound a little bit not improvisational, but a little bit more free form yeah, kind yeah. of rock out jazz kind of fusion kind of things. Which um, it's interesting because it's like some of the sound. It, you kind of lock into quite a groove, don't you? It's quite a yeah. kind of hypnotic sound that starts to develop, which I know it wasn't what the Grateful Dead was doing in the 60s, but there was something about sort of getting getting into a, a, a sound, sonic soundscape to sort of give the crowd something to, to go with rather than a 90-second yeah. thrash number. Yeah, it also was like when, uh, especially around that time, the end of the 80s, uh, we also saw, we also, when as we opened our ears more to other kinds of music, so also a bit to the improv jazz scene in Amsterdam, which was quite good, then you also realize, we also realized that 
some of these jazzers were uh, much more punk in their approach to the music than the punk bands were. They were much more free or daring to do something totally strange with it. And uh, so, and when we met them and then, well, when there was a click, then we thought, okay, well, maybe, uh, maybe they want to do something with us then. Uh, and, and they thought, oh, they, they thought that we also were a bit weird because we were a sort of, in their eyes, we were a sort of punk band, but uh, we were very uh, tight and it's not, uh, once you become a part of us, it's not, uh, it, it, it always felt like one and one is three when we play with somebody else. Yes. Because that person adds something of himself, of his own sound, and then uh, we, we could... Uh, that helped us to improve our own sound somehow. We could find different ways of playing. Uh, so if you would play with Tom Cora, the, the cello player, something happened that had never happened before, but he added something melodic to our noise uh, rock, so to speak. And that opened a sort of uh, doors for uh, to different kinds of audiences. Yes. And, then, and, and also then, we, 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 met, we really realized that, oh, we can, uh, we are not stuck to this format of a song with a, with a, a, too, uh, how you say that, too much composed. It can also grow more freely into a song. Yeah. And did you feel yeah. that um, your audience were follow, kind of going with you on that journey? Or? Uh, 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 not for a long time they did not but when we did a thing with Tom Cora suddenly things came together and then the sort of avant-garde audience uh, opened up for us so to speak that because before that they still considered us a punk band somehow. yeah I mean it's, were, yeah. because it's interesting how that I mean, you know, thinking of people like David Bowie who had to sort of make that moment with killing Ziggy off and then sort of doing other things and realising yeah. that some people must have just thought, no, I'm not going with that. And then suddenly yeah. you're thinking, then other people going, no, station to station's fine, young Americans. Oh, bloody yeah, hell, yeah, yeah. low, that's a bit weird. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, it's kind of interesting that he spent all the 60s kind of trying to get somewhere and not getting anywhere at all with some of those albums and singles that he did which sound really yeah. peculiar I mean I don't know who would have bought them at the same time that you could have had the Beatles Stones, Jimi Hendrix, yeah. The Doors, yeah. Jefferson Airplane or David Bowie's weird sort of kind of quirky folk songs which would have been yeah. weird but then you know to sort of keep sort of changing each kind of like album nearly and the band yeah. was quite something so again but there, but it also helps if you want to get away from just being that band with that sort of audience who are always going to start dwindling if you you know because I know a few of those bands yeah from from that kind of period of that, that you're talking about from the early 80s and and they're not picking any new people up they're just kind of literally their crowd are just slowly dwindling as they sort of get too yeah. old to go out anymore so it's kind of it's good to experiment and sometimes kind of lose. yeah some, sometimes you lose a big lump of audience and then that's okay also then but at the same time other people get interested in it and then at a certain point, you have this audience that accepts that they know that 
they, it, they kind of uh, may know more or less what to expect during a concert, but they also know that there will be parts where they something happens that they have no idea uh, what's, what the fuck is that. But when it fits in the whole uh, concert itself, then you can convince them too, because it's part of the experience of the concert. Yes. And 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 people, uh, well, people are not stupid, so they they also they either like it or not, but they also learn to appreciate uh, to listen to a concert like that. So that uh, yeah, at a certain point, I know. There's a core, and then slowly, with the years, we built up an audience, basically one one fan by one uh, it will never be massive but that's okay too no but know, I, I remember uh, sort of seeing people like um the fall collaborating with that michael clark dance company yeah, yeah, yeah. that particular concert or tour was pretty amazing and you know and also yeah. i do love bands like Liebach because they seem to always kind of play with different things and different ideas yeah, yeah. So, on purpose they put you on the wrong uh, uh Food, are you saying? Yes, I think they, they like to yeah, sort of yeah. throw a curveball. The Sound of Music, yeah, 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 yeah. Jesus Christ Superstar, the work of Andrew Lloyd Webber. Did you sort of feel <laughs> as a, as a, um, as, as a, did you sort of start to, did you ever struggle calling yourself an artist during that period? Did you ever suddenly think, actually, this is what I am and this is what I do? I just wondered if you were, if at yeah. first you felt like the, you know, a bit of an imposter and then went, God, actually, this is, I'm quite good at this. This is my job. Well, I, we, we realized that after, uh, because we never planned to stay together that long, we just thought, okay, we start and maybe it's done in a year or like, or after the first album, could be a year. But we always felt uh, we had new ideas. So when you look back, suddenly we were already five years together, then 10 years together. So we thought, okay, this is... Uh, yeah, this is what we do. But uh, for a long time, I didn't consider myself uh, a musician or so, because we were still on, uh, till with Tom Cora, we were basically on the dole, and we it was not easy to make a, a living uh, with our music. But when the album with Tom Cora, that opened up uh, other doors for different kinds of venues, and that album sold really well. And then four out of five of us uh, became officially musician. And I stayed on the dole for a longer time because uh, because I had my uh, stage name. It's not my real name. It was easy to stay uh, on the dole, which would uh, give us a bit of uh, less uh, expenses for the band for a while. But yeah, I, at that time, I was not really sure if I was an artist or not. I was always a bit in between the feel, so to speak. Yes. But, uh, but then, yeah, with the years, then at a certain point I had to admit, <laughs> I'm, I'm doing this for 20 years, okay, I'm doing this for 25, yeah, okay, I have to admit I, uh, uh, yeah. I'll put it on my passport. Yeah, 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 well. <laughs> and, then, and then the customs guys asked, okay, uh, 
play something. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, I, I can't play any instrument. <laughs> I'm a musician, but I can't play any yeah. instrument. Okay, sing. No, don't say that. <laughs> no. <laughs> Too much. Yeah, that, well, that, that's true. I, I, can't, I can't do that. Uh, <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's physical. Uh, it's not physically, it's uh, for me that I, I cannot do that. Yes. Yeah, that's um, that's not not that's not my kind of singing. I know people who can, if there's a party, they grab a guitar and they sing a few songs. And for me, I uh, no, that uh, that's I uh, know that that's other. Uh, yes, that's another bag. You don't want uh, really, to really, yeah. So look, as as the as the as we went through the dec you know, decades, you know, when you're getting to that two thousand and eight period, which was kind of when you 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 were sort of leaving the band, did, was that something that had been sort of creeping up for a, a while that you felt? Uh, well, at that time I didn't know it, but uh, later I realised, yeah, that had been creeping up the last years or so that uh, we were together. In the uh, I re somehow. The X had always been uh, slightly moving in different directions, and I always had felt comfortable in those changes. But uh, at a certain moment, it went into a direction where there was longer tracks, songs with less uh, less need for vocals. I had a feel, and I also. Uh, got a bit. Um, I I started to dislike certain things, and and I that confused me because I always liked every aspect of, of the band. But later I realized that I felt a bit uh, trapped by my own uh, Calvinistic uh, approach, so to speak. That because the X was my first band. I only knew how to be in a band uh, with the X. So everything I wrote, I could not think writing something outside uh, the X. So everything I wrote had to be for the X. I could also not think of uh, doing other projects next to the X because that's... Uh, and, and with the way we made the songs, with the way we were making the songs, uh, through the years, there's a sort of way you you get accustomed to do it, and I felt a bit stuck in the in that method too. So all these things came a bit together, and then I I got really uh, very uh, slept very bad that last year. So at a certain point, I thought also like I have to stop. I have to. Uh, do something else, and I thought it was very scary because I thought uh, I can stop, but what the fuck, I, I can't do anything else. So. But the moment I decided, okay, I, I, uh, I have to do, I have to quit because I can't fool myself. Because if I fool myself, I fool the band, I fool the audience. So I thought, okay, I have to stop. And when I decided that, it was a sort of a big relief. I could sleep again, and uh, and then later on, I, I thought I was finished with music, but via via, I got back into the music about one and a half year later, 
and since then I, I play with uh, all kinds of bands, too, too many to mention somehow. And yes. Totally the opposite of what I did with the X. Yeah. So was so, it when your experience with that the album you did in about '04, the return, which was the one you yeah, recorded, yeah. was that an, a good experience? Were you feeling all right with the band then? Yeah, 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 yeah. But that was basically our last uh, real uh, 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 band album because after that came the singles compilation and then the project with. Uh, Ethiopian sax player Katachi Makuria, which were more his songs. Yes. So, but after the, uh, the after the turn, we got we were started to search somehow uh, for a different, and it became more that uh, yeah, uh, I lost uh, a bit of feel there. Yeah. Uh, and was was the dynamic with the band? You know, was communication just not sort of flowing as easy as it had been? Uh, well, it, we, we had never uh, really a fight or so with that, uh, or arguments, but I, I think they uh, realised sooner than me that uh, that I was not uh, 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 so focused, uh, as uh, enthusiastic enough anymore. But... Um, and yes. we talked about it a couple of times, and then I thought, okay, maybe I, if I change this, maybe I can find my uh, enthusiasm back or something. But yeah, at a certain point, I thought, ah, it's now that it, uh, it's missing. My God, that's quite that's quite a drastic moment in life, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it, uh, it was very scary, but because it had been my life for thirty years, and and they're all friends, so it's it's. But I thought, okay, I'm gonna uh, maybe I can do some layout work, artwork, and then next to that, write a book or stuff. But uh, I can do some artwork, but I'm not so good in getting. I uh, I call that. Uh, uh, I, I'm not gonna phone people up like, can I do some artwork for you? So yes, do, do you have a do you have a job for me? Yes. So fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very bad at that. So, yeah. but but I was lucky then that we had worked with a, a theatre company, uh, the Electric, and the uh, how do you call that the the director of the group that of that project that we had done. She and the guy who uh, who, who did the, the the text for the the, the theatre thing, they work now somewhere else, and they. Uh, needed a voice, not necessarily uh, an actor, but a voice for the next play. And they uh, wanted my voice. So suddenly uh, I stood again on the stage and I had to do it in Dutch and it was without music, but people could hear every word that I said and uh, understand it. And so I realized, hey, I still like uh, to perform and do something with language with words so and that and around that time some people also uh, asked me if I would do one lyric for one song for their project blah 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 that went via internet and stuff so slowly I got back into music and then 
people started to call, ask me uh, because they realized this uh, not in the X anymore, but we want this kind of voice in our band. So people started to ask, do you want to be part of our project? And sometimes it was a one-off thing. And when it was nicer than just a one-off, it became a band. And then suddenly I was in six, seven, eight, nine bands, uh, sometimes played and then long time not. And and I re uh, But it was now more different in the sense that it's different kinds of music. So I had to write in different kinds of lyrics, but also use my voice in a different way uh, that I was not so used to. So I had to find uh, new ways of how I put my voice on the, that kind of particular kind of music. So, and I really uh, suddenly I felt free again somehow. So yeah, because you so did you did a cl or collaboration or a project. Um, King Champion Sands, and that was with, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, with a very talented musician who I've also did an interview with, um, which I'm going to probably mispronounce his name because I can't remember, AJ... AJ Saga. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So that must, again, must felt really nice to be kind of working with quite a different dynamic and different group. Yeah, but also because uh, most of the, my projects are bands are uh, somehow in France, and Ajay, I know since, uh, well, the early 80s, since we met him when he was a, a big fan of the membranes, traveling uh, after the membranes and show up there at every gig. And, yeah. when, so, and then Ajay became a fan of the X and then he came to live in Holland. So I know him a long time. And he had his uh, other band first, but he wanted to change that. So we asked, so there was a one-off thing and I would do the vocals. But it went really well, so we thought, okay, we can also be a band then. So that, uh, so that is a, yeah, that band is uh, nice because it's in Holland itself. It's one um, almost my only, only Dutch project basically. Yes, I mean actually, and, you've got one hell of a CV of stuff. Have you managed to archive and catalogue it all? Because because um, it is it goes back and. Most people get to an age where they sort of think, God, I really want to sort of slightly pull this together and um, and just get it nice and tidy. Have you managed to sort of keep hold of stuff, recordings, artwork? Uh, of, 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 of what I've recorded with whom and stuff? With, well, with, with both the X, you know, have you've yeah, got yeah, all yeah, that yeah. archive, but also kind of any kind of art artwork because obviously... We love we love those exhibitions. I'm not saying you can have an exhibition like David Bowie at the V&A, but no, you know no, there, no, there no. was a, it's, you know bringing occasionally because you've done a book, haven't you? You released the book of um, yeah, the lyrics, basically. the lyrics, yeah, and yeah. and obviously and, you have a passion for sort of archive and stuff. I just wondered if there was yeah, any yeah. other projects that you've got of that to both kind of have it so it's there, but also to process it emotionally as well. Uh, no, well, I. I, I keep track of when I play, with, with which 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 band, city, venue, uh, country, the dates, and when he actually also wrote down with which band we would play. That started just as a a bullshitty thing, but at a certain point, it became quite a long list. So then it became the longer the list, the more interesting it was. So I like that uh, kind of stuff. So I keep that. So I also 
keep track of what we recorded and with the uh, stuff that I do with others, I also do that. But um, yeah, my artwork archive is uh, not so good, I must say, because that's a bit, uh, it was a lot of cut and paste, uh, gluing and stuff before the yes. computer time. And we lost a lot of, I kind of have most of the things somehow, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of stuff that I scat still a bit scattered. Yeah. And, I, and I'm not sure if it's worth an exhibition. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I kind of, I think that um, the thing I've noticed in life which is that like a parson of time, somewhere between 25 to 30 years, things suddenly take on a quite a different look, vibe, meaning. And, and I noticed two, last year, I think it was last year, there was two books came out on kind of fanzines of the sort of, especially the, not just the 70s, but also the 80s. And, and it was like, oh, God, that's interesting, because I'm sure we were just going to, would have thrown them out, things like fanzines to a point. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. But then no, suddenly true, you yeah. look at them and you think, actually, they're kind of become a historic document. And I think, you know, having gone to some of these exhibitions as well, like Bowie yeah. and there was one about So You Want a Revolution at the V&A as well, you know, suddenly those things, when they're in a, in a behind a glass case, can, can look quite of its time in a good way, not in a disaster. Yeah, no, it's true. I, I, we notice now in, in Holland that there's some people who are more doing more, a bit more research about fanzines that they started to make a better overview of all the fanzines that were there and yes. try to collect them in the whole, all, the, all the issues and put them on a website, for instance, and then they... Uh, scan every page so that's uh, quite stuff but I, I i i did something else then with because of this uh, corona period with this virus the suddenly i had a lot of time on my hands because we couldn't do any concerts anymore of course live concerts so and all the projects were uh, on a sort of standstill like well most of people's uh, working stuff and then there was a uh, on facebook people started sometimes these challenges like name 10 uh, 10 books uh, just uh, cover no explanation blah 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 and then they would uh, ask somebody else to do the same and then there was one challenge that was about name 10 records uh, and just the just the sleeve nothing else but I thought, well, I like if people put up the sleeve, I'd like to hear the story uh, behind it. Why, why do they like that record? Why is it an important record for them? And then I made a rough count of the records that I made with the X, the singles and uh, compilations, another compilation, synth singles and albums and stuff. So I thought, oh, I can do, uh, I can do 45. Of course, 45, and I could, that would be either 33 or 45 or 78, of course. So I thought, oh, I can do 45 maybe. So then I made a challenge for myself. I would write every day about a, a record uh, uh, that is important to me. And then I would do that for the first 45 days. So I thought I'd just take the sleeves of the all the X records chronologically 
and write a few lines about the record, but then people started to like it, and then the, the little uh, pieces became bigger and bigger and bigger, and then I wanted to have the, the facts uh, straight, so I had to check uh, if, the, if my blah blah story was also correct. And at a certain point, I was bloody hell, it took me every day hours to do it properly. And also people would be commenting and I would look up things. So in the end, people said, you have to make a book out of it. <laughs> and I said, yeah, right. Well, that's the last thing I wanted to do. Uh, but uh, they convinced me and said, well, I thought, well, I already have the text. So... <laughs> So now I'm going to make it in a book. So, Excellent. And, and it's more that what is interesting was that it, for me it was a strange dive into my own past with the X because while writing it, all these little anecdotes pop up suddenly in your head like, oh, yeah, this happened and that happened. And then somebody said, but weren't you there with uh, that and that, uh, blah, blah, blah. Said, oh, yeah, it's true. Yeah, oh, yeah. So uh, maybe I can put that in the next story somewhere and, so the so it, uh, the, the stories became a bit longer and longer, but um, I managed to kind of uh, very because uh, I I cannot tell everything, but I managed to make it into little stories that were nice to read and people liked it. So I thought, okay, I'll stop all history of the edge, but it's a sort of. Uh, starting point for uh, another book maybe but yes I'm, well uh, it's, you know, it's I'm not going to write the history of the axe but uh, but these little de uh, yeah these little anecdotes they also tell something about uh, the dynamics of what was happening then so uh, that I liked also very much it gives a bit of the because a lot of the people who read it that they were not there when we when it happened because they were either too young or on the other side of the ocean or stuff like that so well it sounds it sounds like a good way to you know like if if someone had sit, sit, told you to sit down and write the story of the x you'd have probably sort of froze and thought god that's so yeah, boring but actually definitely. sort of te teasing your <laughs> teasing your way into doing a creative project like that yeah. kind of makes it like actually that wasn't too pain you know what it doesn't sound like it was too painful and at the same time, it probably for the reader will be a lot more easy than saying, oh, you know, just going through it, you know, in that kind of slightly, God, they, it can be a bit, you know, let's face it, some of those books can, can you can start to jump chapters, whereas actually the way yeah, you yeah, put yeah, it down, yeah, yeah. Yeah. you know, it's probably going to be one that people will dive into different areas and you don't probably have to yeah. go through it chronologically either. So, oh, that sounds fantastic. Well, it's, it's a... Uh, it's actually fun to do, but now I have to finish the artwork. So that's the. Uh, I know. You still got during, August. During my holiday. Yes, I know. <laughs> but at least you'll go. Well, but I'm well, almost there, uh, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm complaining, but I'm not complaining. No. God, you it's sound, also, it's you also sound, fun you, to do. So. You sound so British when you complain. <laughs> that's what we like doing and in a lot of british friends huh? so. yeah i know don't worry i can say that I'm <laughs> but look what would you just lastly what would you say to a, an 18 year old self then if you could have said something to to that person that was you back then as you were you know just about to launch yourself into this interesting career your 18 year old self would never recognize you now would they 
Uh, no. <laughs> it, it would be, uh, especially at 18, I had no idea yet. Uh, for me, I was already 19 or 20 when I got into punk. And at 18, I had no idea yet what. But what I know was when I was 18, I had to choose what to do for like, study or work. And at that time, I had no idea that you could do something as a study, something like art school. Nobody told us uh, at that time. So I think if you're now 18, you have to, and you want to be creative, or you feel that you want to be create, that you want to create things, then just try something. And uh, you don't have to hurry, but uh, just, try things out and sometimes it doesn't work and you try something else and there comes a moment where you think okay this 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 suits me and then yeah uh, yes have faith and uh, enjoy and if it doesn't work try something else i guess keep on rolling that's good yeah no it's it's i remember it's a i don't know who said it but there was some Quotes from, well, I don't know who. He said, uh, if you try something and you fail, don't worry. Uh, next time, fail better. Yes, I've heard that actually somewhere. Yeah, I don't know who said it, but it, uh, it was a writer, I guess, but or an artist. But, but in a way, it's true because all the sort of things that didn't work, you learn something out of that, and then it's, the next time you've learned something from that um, mistake or error or failure, because next time you make, you don't make that mistake anymore. You might make another mistake, but that brings you a step further also. Yes, because actually, just on that last that point, I remember once we went to America to see this guy who was doing these kind of earth ships. They were sort of... Um, Living, you know, it was like person who wanted to find a way of constructing homes, which were completely yeah. off-grid, using tyres, basically. Yeah. And tins and bottles for walls, you know, and, and sort yeah. of, so there was no electricity or running water. And, and it was, you know, it worked. They were called earth ships. And I heard him talk and he said that what he, and he said he wanted the freedom to fail because then he could, when he failed, he would then make the next one, but he wouldn't do the same mistakes until he got it right. But he yeah. had to sort of, you know, keep making those improvements. But you would only do that every time you did something yeah. that went right. We must yeah, do that. That's true. Eh? But also, like, if you never make the mistake, the more and more you get, uh, if everything always goes well, you, you also might, uh, you might freeze because then you feel like you're not allowed to make any mistake because then you have failed. It's like if you are uh, the best uh, tennis player in the world and you always win, then you get, uh, if you never lose, you're going to lose sometime, but that could be then so terrible. But no, if you just sometimes lose, then it's also nicer to win again. Because then you appreciate also, you, you, you've lost, okay, you failed. Okay, but then the next time when you win, then you have a, a, another feeling of the about the winning than when you always won. You know that. Yes. I, I, I uh, make a bad record, and then the next time you 
because it uh, you, you like like Lou Reed made this uh, metal machine music thing. Okay, it was maybe not a good record, but it uh, well in retrospect maybe it was an interesting record anyway. But because he he challenges himself to do something totally different, and it gives him afterwards other ideas for his next record. Yes. So, yeah. Yes. Well, I, I mean, just on that last point, I, I thought you were going to say David Bowie's Tin Machine, actually. Um, oh, well, yeah, also, no, for him, that was very... Uh, uh, it was not uh, it was not his best period, but for him, it was uh, a necessary step, maybe a step back, to go forward again. Yeah, well, I kind of felt that he'd, he'd sort of realised the 80s with um, After Tonight and Never Let Me Down and the Glass Spider tour that he needed to sort of... He wasn't going to quit music, which was fantastic, yeah. but he yeah. needed to do something slightly radical or different just to yeah, sort of yeah, change, yeah, to yeah. change the channel, basically, and yeah. he did. And because, then he did. of course, it's a strange idea that you think that if you're that popular that you can play in the band with three other guys and then pretend just be one of the guys. Yeah. Well, the whole audience is coming for you. Yes. Uh, so, but uh, at, at least it was uh, interesting that he tried it like that. And then, okay, he learned something from yeah. that. that and well, I think it was, yeah, I think he can just, get a step further again. He yeah. just needed to kind of do something quite radical. And he didn't spend 10 years on the project. He just spent a bit of time, <laughs> yeah. which was yeah. a relief. And then he just went, yeah. right, that's the end of that project. I'm now going to go back to other things. And I yeah, don't know, yeah, I just yeah. suppose I always, you know, because people knew I was a big David Bowie fan, would think it was like, I don't know, they thought that was, oh, look, he's lost it or he's terrible now. He's like, well, I don't, you know, I don't look at it like that. I just look no, at it, it was no, like, no. well, you know, he's had a go at that. He's going to do some light kind of jazz pop record. Then he's going to do some drum and bass. I think I just kind of saw him thinking, well, I can't, I can't do Hunky Dory and Ziggy Stardust for the rest of my life. I have to, yeah, yeah. I, you know, that's not, I can't, you know, I'll go mad if I had to sort of go and put, yeah, up, yeah. put on some yeah. makeup and, and pretend to be an alien at the moment, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he had to redefine his own self in a way, but as he saw it himself and not as a commitment to an audience. Yes, definitely it's, not. It's, yes. So <laughs> that's the last thing you want, so. I know, playing to the crowd is a dangerous yeah, object. Yeah, it's terrible. It's yeah. a terrible moment. Dead of death. <laughs> Look, this has been amazing. Well, thank you ever so much for this. Um, uh, you're welcome it was fun it was been amazing yeah well look and this is great that um, I have to go because I think you've got you've got a lot of stuff on Bandcamp haven't you your material uh, yeah uh, but that's all from my I have a small label so when I when we we're with a band a project that we don't find the label then I put it sometimes out myself so there's uh, some bands there but also like if if you have the uh, if you look, if you look at the bandcamp to the listen to the painters you can the the CD mm -hmm. you can see all these other bands that I was playing with so most of them are uh, you have to might have to look there sometimes because I, I I can send you also list with things I'm doing now oh excellent that that you can sort of more up to date. Uh, because yes. there's some nice stuff in between there with the French bands from Paris. I did some really nice, really beautiful things uh, lately. 
Oh, I'll send you, I'll send you an email tomorrow. Oh yeah, do that. Look, and that's... you you, ju you choose whatever you want, but you can you can have a listen. And... Brilliant. Well, thank you ever so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This has been magic. Look, well, look, thank you ever so much, and I'll um I'll be in touch and um have a great evening or night. Yeah, you too. Yeah. Okay. Take care. Okay. Of See you yeah. later. Bye bye. Yeah. Ciao ciao. And that was me in conversation with G W Sock from the X. Thank you ever so much for listening. If you still are, well done. You deserve a medal. But anyway, a huge thank you to GW there for that interview. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do at C86 and show, and that's all good. And all these shows have been archived, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Anyway, have a great week. <laughs>